grace because of the great love with which you loved us that you would also do what we just sang about Lord and I pray this morning that you would help us to behold you help us to see you not with our physical eyes but with the eyes of our heart I pray Lord as we prayed over us so many times what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church I pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened opened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power towards us who believe. That power is like the working of your mighty strength which you exerted in Christ Jesus when you raised him from the dead and seated him above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that could ever be named in heaven or on earth. So Lord, we wanna worship you this morning. Please continue to inhabit the praises of your people and help us to see you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. You can have a seat. Good to see you. Please grab your Bibles. Go to uh, Romans chapter 16. It's <clears throat> where we will be today. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. 28 individuals, 26 individual names. <coughs> I am going to read it, then we'll get into it. Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And you guys know my uh, philosophy on uh, when you read names in the Bible that you're not sure how to pronounce. Just say them fast, say them confident, and nobody knows the difference. So there'll be some of that. Since I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convent or first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stychus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Ansyncritus, Phygian, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philolodus. Philologus, Julia Nereus, and his sister and Olympus. I couldn't even say that one confidence, with confidence, even though I didn't know what it was. Um, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right. Let me pray one more time. Father, thanks for today. Uh, we love you. Please help us to see wonderful things in this passage this morning because it is wonderful. Um, help our hearts to sing. In Christ's name I pray, amen. One of the side effects of having young kids is that you end up becoming much more familiar with movies that maybe you never intended to know all that well. There was a time in my life, um, 
several years ago when the boys were young that I felt like I could quote the majority of Toy Story, Cars, and Finding Nemo. Uh, one of my favorite movies, however, of all time, out of those, you know, kind of that genre, if you will, is Kung Fu Panda. Um, it's a classic. Uh, the storyline goes something like this. Poe, the lovable panda, desperately wants to become a member of the Furious Five, who are the greatest Kung Fu warriors in all of China. However, he instead finds himself relegated to working in his father's restaurant, and day after day, he helps his dad serve to people what is known as the secret ingredient soup. Through a series of crazy events, he gets an opportunity to train with the Furious Five at the famous Jade Palace, and he is mentored by the renowned Master Shifu, the greatest kung fu master in all of China. And while the story ebbs and flows through different subplots that are, of course, um, goofy and outlandish, the main plot or tension of the movie is that in the end, Poe just doesn't have that secret ingredient or that secret sauce that all the other kung fu masters seem to have. And so he believes that he is destined to a life of obscurity, of waiting tables in his father's restaurant until, at the climactic moment towards the end of the movie, his father, who is a goose by the way, um, says, Poe, I think it's time I told you something that I should have told you a long time ago. And that is the secret ingredient to my secret ingredient soup. And he comes in real close and looks around to make sure nobody else is listening. And he says, the secret ingredient to my secret ingredient soup is nothing. There is no secret ingredient. And this is kind of the climactic aha moment of the movie as Poe realizes that he too can be a kung fu master just the way he is as a panda um, as long as he stops looking for some sort of secret ingredient that he'll never find. Now, I share all that silly story with you because a thriving, healthy local church is one that understands that the secret ingredient of a secret ingredient church is that there is no secret ingredient. What you have in this passage that I just read this morning and what I want us to get this morning is that all you have in this passage is you have a people who are simply united to Christ, united to his mission, and united to each other. That's it, and that is enough. And it's been enough for 2,000 years as Jesus has been building his church through the power and proclamation of the gospel, which is what we have been studying. The ins and outs, the nuances of the gospel, it's, it's all throughout the whole Bible, but no place will you find it more succinctly and yet robustly, if you will, than in the book of Romans, and this is where we've been. And dear friends, I, I just, as we look at this this morning, um, I want us to remember that in Christ Jesus, we have been made complete. There is no secret ingredient outside of what we already have. Um, this passage, while easily overlooked, I think, uh, by many people, is perhaps, and, I, and this is, these are not my words, these are the, the, the words of several people throughout history. Emil Bruner um, said, called this one of the most important passages in the New Testament. The early church father, Chrysostom, said, I think that many, even of those who have the appearance of being extremely good men, 
hasten over this part of the epistle as pointless. Yet even those who mine for gold are people who are careful even about the smallest little fragments. It is possible even from bare names to find great treasure. And I'm telling you, there is great treasure in this passage this morning. And I just want us to look at this. And again, what I want to point out is what these people had. Uh, The secret ingredient that really isn't a secret ingredient, again, is that they were united to Christ, united to the mission, and united to each other through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. First of all, just that they were united to Christ. This is something that we've talked about over the course of the last year a lot, and we will continue to talk about it no matter what book of the Bible we're in and what we're studying because it is the center of what it means to be a Christian. It's at the very heart of it, that we're united to Christ. Notice in the passage, if you were reading, following along carefully, Jesus is mentioned 12 times in the passage. Every time he is referred to as either Lord or Christ. Um, out of those 12 times that he is referred to as either Lord or, or, or Christ, uh, 10 out of those 12 times are followed by in Christ, or, or uh, I'm sorry, are preceded by either in Christ or in the Lord, as Paul tells different people to greet one another in the Lord, to greet one another in Christ, that they are approved in Christ or in, in the Lord. Um, Jesus is at the center of this entire thing. He is the reason why this church exists. He is the reason why we exist. And this is something that, as we've studied it over the last couple of year, or over the last year or so in this book, is that you know, we've talked about justification and sanctification and, and glorification and um, you know, the remission of sins and God's working uh, to elect us and to draw people to himself and um, you know, uniting us to him. But at the heart of it all, I, and, I, and I trust that we haven't missed this as, we, as we've gone through this amazing book, at the heart of it all, folks, is just the simple message about the person of Jesus Christ. It is always, only, ever about Jesus. And so while there's been some things in Romans that for sure have been hard to understand and we don't shy away from those things and we go back and we read them again and we study them again and we dissect it again to try to understand the flow of thought and and what's here and why it was written down for us in God's inspired word. At the heart of it all, never lose the fact that you are anchored to Jesus Christ and that in the end, everything comes down to him. And it's, it's those... Um, it's those people that understand that Jesus Christ is both the Christ and the Lord. Again, that's always how he's referred to here. You don't see the name Jesus, but you see his titles, Christ and Lord. It's those that have embraced him as both Christ and Lord, whose lives are transformed and who have made the biggest difference uh, throughout history. In, in regards to those two titles, just quickly, Christ, many people think that it's like a, his last name. It's not, it's a title, um, it's the Greek translation uh, of the Hebrew word Messiah. It, it, Christos means to like anoint. He's the, the, the anointed one. But it's not like there's many anointed ones. He is the anointed one. There is no one else other than Jesus who is the Christ. It speaks to his preeminence and his exclusivity. There is no one other than Jesus. He is the one and only, as we just sang about. Because he is the one and only, because he's preeminent and he is exclusively the Christ, he is also then, by extension, and although the Bible also explicitly teaches it, he is also Lord. 
He is Lord and he is Savior. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. The only response, the only proper response to Jesus Christ, if you understand who he is, is to bow the knee as Lord. To be indifferent is the worst possible response that there could possibly be. And to be indifferent shows that you either don't understand who he is or you are outright rejecting who he is. Because if you understand that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, eternal, who created all the heavens and put all the stars in place and called everyone by name, the only proper response is to bow to him as Lord and Savior. And as we've seen throughout this book, Paul often refers to himself, he refers to the church as doulos, as slaves, not just servants, but slaves to Christ. And those who truly understand the gospel and that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we understand that the greatest freedom that man can ever find is found through slavery to Jesus Christ. And Paul, the writer of this book, was somebody who understood that. He bowed the knee to Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And this was a church. This is a list of names, 26 and eight individuals, 26 listed by name in the early church that understood this. That Jesus Christ was Lord. Recently, uh, some of you, if you, did you guys get the e-news? Did you guys get the Mercy Hill e-news? Anybody? Okay. Sign up for the e-news. Conrad puts out the e-news every week, lets you know what's going on. Uh, I think in one of the recent editions of the e-news, uh, Conrad mentioned in there that we just started a couple of new podcasts. One of, his, one of them is called Bride Body Family Temple, where we just talk about all things church. But another one is called Eat This Scroll, and we just go through the Bible and we kind of pause along the way. And as we study the Bible, we also talk about how to study the Bible. It's kind of the point of it. It's not just me. It's a, there's usually three or four of us in there um, studying that. And, but recently, as we've started that podcast, uh, this episode's not been released yet, but, but we're studying the book of Philippians, and we're just walking through it. And we recently recorded one, though, where we came to Philippians chapter 3, um, where, of course, Paul says that whatever things I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. It's literally dung, manure, is the church version of that word that I'll use. I count them as manure in order that I may gain Christ and may be found, where? In him, united to him. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And the thing that struck me as we were going through this um, a couple weeks ago is, is that when Paul says several times in that passage that I counted everything as loss and I count everything as loss and I count it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, is that, that this was not just a mental exercise for Paul. Is that, yes, the idea of counting it, and, and it should be for all of us, is that we count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said that. If anybody wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and to follow me. He tells us up front what's required to follow him, and that is that we may need to lose everything if it means continuing to follow Jesus, because in our pursuit of him, there is nothing that we're not willing to let go of. 
And we should, yes, it, it is a mental thing, it is an attitude thing, it's something that we should predetermine and understand that this is what's required to follow Jesus. And yet, it, it also just struck me that, that for Paul, th- this wasn't just hypothetical theory. As he's writing these words, he's writing them from a prison cell. This wasn't a theory, it was the, the very essence of his reality. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's why when we baptize folks, and by the way, we're going to be having another baptismal service sometime here in January. If anybody wants to get baptized, we have an individual that wants to get baptized, and so we're going to be baptizing them, but if anybody else wants wants to get baptized, please come see me after the service or sign up online. We'll let you know when that date's going to be sometime in January. But anyway, that little aside, um, baptism, it's... It's not just a religious ritual where we get people wet. It's a God-ordained, spirit-empowered funeral where we declare through imagery that this person has died and they've been raised with Christ. That's why the essence of discipleship, we have to understand that this is, if we're going to follow Jesus, this death to self and to the world, all things, as Paul said, It's required. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Then he says this, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. My point this morning is not to break down uh, Matthew chapter 28, but the the point being this is is that make disciples is the command, and then the way that we do that is through baptizing and teaching. But notice which one comes first, baptizing. You know why? Because good luck trying to teach some, something to somebody. Good luck trying to teach the things of the word of God and total allegiance to Jesus Christ. Good luck trying to teach those things to somebody who hasn't died yet. And this is what baptism represents. Is that the reason our lives are transformed by the power of God is because we understand that Jesus is both Christ, he's preeminent, he's exclusive, And he has the right, because of who he is and what he has done, to rule and to reign. This is how Paul has talked about it throughout this book. If you remember when we were in Romans chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And again, if you remember, like, yeah, we're still going to struggle with sin, but do we just continue in it? Are we flippant towards it? No. He says, by no means, how can you who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. If you want a new life in Christ, you've got to die. That's the message of the gospel. And when you understand God's holiness and your sin in light of his holiness, I wouldn't even just say that you have to die. I would actually say this, and I'm not being... I I don't know, sarcastic here. I would actually say this. When you see your sin in light of God's holiness, it's not just that you have to die, it's that you get to die. The the old man, (laughs) the old sinful man that's caused so much pain and death, Jesus has an answer for that. He says, come be crucified with me. And I will give you a new life. See, in Jesus' commands of to take up our cross and follow him, it's all out of a heart of love. While many people find it hard to swallow and begin to choke on it because of the initial command to to take up your cross and follow him, he says, for whoever wants to save his life must lose it. 
See, he's trying to show us the way to life. And that it's through death. And for Paul and for these individuals here, as we'll see more as we kind of get into some of the specifics of the name, they had been united to Christ. They understood this is what it meant. (laughs) To be united to him was to die with him. These people were not just members of a club. They were united to Christ. They were not just um, uh, expounding upon the newest philosophical ideas. They were united to Christ. They were not just jumping on the latest cultural bandwagon. They were united to Christ. And they did it together. Ajith Fernando, some of you may not have known, I believe he's... um, been, re, been leading, um, been working for uh, Youth for Christ over in Sri Lanka for years. Um, he has several books, if you ever want to Google him. Um, uh, he doesn't get a ton of press in America, just a, a wonderful, wonderful writer. I really enjoy a lot of his stuff. But anyway, he says this, he says, when we enter into the in Christ existence, we become one with those who are in Christ. So again, not just that we're united to Christ, but that we're united to each other, which is part of what we see here in Paul speaking to all these individuals. He says, eternal life is received individually, but it is lived out in community, in the church. He says, in the community battle sin in the body by confronting sinners and by requiring spiritual accountability. And, and when he says that last line there, don't, don't just think that we're just going to get together and like pick on each other's lives and like... Um, and just be judgmental for the sake of being judgmental. When he's speaking of accountability, I think the essence of what he's talking about is like we need to remind each other. It's like I need Eli to remind me to speak the gospel to me. Say, Eric, remember, you've died with Christ. You've been united to him. I need to say it to Eli and vice versa. We say it to each other, reminding each other of who, of who we are. <coughs> Excuse me. But the first thing um, that if we're going to be a thriving local church, healthy local church, not perfect, but healthy, as I think the Roman church was, we have to treasure our union with Christ, folks. Is union with Christ enough for you? Is union with Christ enough for you? you? Do you cultivate that? Like, Eric, what, what, what do you mean? I mean, do you ever just stop, put down the phone, turn off the TV, get away from the noise, and, either, and go somewhere by yourself or get with some friends where either you can be, and I, I think the Bible teaches both of these, either you can be zealous and passionate in worship, and, and I just want to let you know this, this isn't a boast, this isn't a break, I'm trying to, I, I, I say this just because this is a part of my daily rhythm. My daily routine. It's like, and weekly especially, as I drove to the hub this morning, I usually go to the hub early on Sunday mornings and just kind of go over the sermon, put some finishing touches on it, and just kind of, and I actually sit before the Lord and just ask him if there's anything else he wants me to kind of say this morning as I meditate upon the text. But before I sit in quietness and meditate upon the text and, you know, scribble down anything that he might want me to, to say, on the way here, man, I've got my song right now is... Uh, is Healer by Planet Shakers. Not sure if you ever heard of them. Not a very popular group. Um, again, Google it, look it up afterwards. It's a good time. Uh, and man, I've just like I've got that on repeat. 
And I'm driving from Lake Buckhorn to the hub this morning, and it is loud. And I am singing loud. And I'm about to lose my voice, but I'm singing to Jesus Christ. Because you know what? Every single morning I wake up, and the old man, and my heart feels dead. And the flesh is there, and you know, I think John Piper said, every morning I wake up and the devil is sitting on my face. That's the way I feel sometimes. I'm sure you feel that way too. But we cultivate this union with Christ. I didn't didn't go and I didn't make myself united. No, I am united, but I'm reminding myself through worship of who he is and who I am in light of who he is. And we have to cultivate these things. It's not a secret sauce, but it's something that's been given to us in Christ, is a union with him, and it's enough. Secondly, they were also united in mission. They were united in mission. Now here, let's just get into a few of the specifics, but before we do, let me just make this observation, is that throughout the New Testament, we get no information on either the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or one of the other 12 specifically planting the church in Rome. But, um, and one of the unique things about Rome is through some different dating and things we know that were going on in history and piecing together some little leftovers, if you will, from the information we have in the New Testament, most scholars are very, very sure that, um, that the epistle to the Romans was written in AD 57 by Paul from the city of Corinth, okay? Uh, now, now, here's what's interesting about that, is that if roughly in 33 AD, you know, Jesus Christ die, dies, rises again, ascends back up into heaven, you have the day of, of, of Pentecost, that's not even quite 25 years, 24-ish years from, from that time, that the gospel had been established in, and the church had been established in, the most important city in the known world. Again, Rome was the center of the world at that time. And this had happened not through superstar apostleship of Peter or Paul, but it had happened by the simple, faithful witness of, known, of some no-name people, other than maybe some of the names that are here, of simple people who'd been transformed by Jesus. You see. Um, many commentators think that perhaps some of the people that were there on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and Peter preached his first sermon were the ones who established the church. Again, little detail, but in Acts chapter 2, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us each one of us in his own language, Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And most people think that it was just these Christians that were there that heard Peter then stand up and preach, that saw the Spirit come in power, that took it back and proclaimed the little bit that they knew, and the church had been established in the headquarters of Caesars who believed themselves to be God. Jesus Christ was actually building his church. But these people were united in mission together. First of all, you have Phoebe. Let me get into the text here. Verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. 
She's a woman, first observation. Um, more than likely, many commentators think that she was possibly a widow. And when it, say, and when it says she was a servant at the church of Centria, it's, a, it's the Greek word diakonos, it's where we get the word deacon. Um, many people believe that she was a deacon or a deaconess in the church in Centria. Now let me explain Centria. Centria is basically Corinth. Um, Centria was one of the uh, little ports or suburbs of the main city of Corinth. So think New York City and then think like one of the five boroughs, like the, the, uh, the, the Bronx or um, uh, uh, Manhattan or something like that. But she was from Centria, which is Corinth. And she was a deaconess, probably, in the church there. She says, and, that, and, he, and when he says here that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, almost all commentators agree that Phoebe was probably the one who carried the letter. She's the one that carried the letter of Romans that Paul wrote. She carried it from Corinth to Rome on behalf of Paul and on behalf of the church there. He goes on and he says to help her. Um, and he says, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And the idea of patron there is that she was probably somewhat wealthy. Uh, she, oh, another reason she probably was okay with traveling is because she probably traveled a lot for business. Um, and she, it seems that she had been a supporter of many people in the church that had gone out. She was a patron not only of Paul, uh, but of others. She took what she had and she used it for the sake of the mission. They were united together in mission. Look at the next verse, Pris Prisca and Aquila. Um, it's Prisca here, it's the same, that, that's a woman's name. She's referred to as Priscilla uh, in the book of Acts. We have a little bit more information about them and it's very, it's, it's quite interesting. <coughs> Excuse me, verse three. Greet Prisca, who's the wife, and Aquila, her husband. My fellow workers, so Paul refers to them as fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. They were very dear to Paul. They had literally risked their necks, risked their lives for Paul. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. And then verse five, greet also the church that is in their house. Now here's what's very interesting as you do a little study throughout the New Testament on Priscilla and Aquila, is that at the time that Paul is writing this, they're back in Rome and they have a little house church. They have a church in their house. Now as you read in the book of Acts, um, let me read to you, um, where is it here? Acts chapter 18 uh, we get a little bit more information about Priscilla and Aquila. This is Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth for the first time. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the emperor at the time, because Claudius has, had commanded that all the, for all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, which Paul, Paul was also. So let me fill in a little bit of history here in the, in the New Testament, is that by the time Paul was writing this, it's almost certainly AD 57. But what had happened was back in AD 49, and we know this from history, is that Claudius, who's mentioned there, who was the emperor at the time, he kicked all the Jews and possibly all the Christians out of Rome. So this is where Priscilla and Aquila had been. They'd been working for the Lord, but because of the, the, the emperor's edict, they had to leave. They go on, but even though they leave their home base, they don't stop preaching the gospel. And they don't stop planting churches. And they end up planting a church uh, in Corinth for a while as well. And I know that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, 
Paul, in finishing up that letter, says the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send hearty greetings in the Lord. And again, that was in Corinth. So, so they're working all around here. They're also in the city of Ephesus. For a while, you read about this later on, um, at the end of Acts, of Acts chapter 18. But if you get what's going on here, this, this couple... <laughs> They were tent makers, they had a trade, but here's the thing I want you to get, is they were willing to rearrange their lives for the sake of the gospel. Tent making was not first for them. Comfort was not first for them. What was familiar was not first for them. What was first for them was the gospel and making disciples. And again, we don't really have time to go into all the weeds on this, but uh, there's a guy named Apollos that you read, uh, read about later on in Acts um, chapter 18. And Apollos uh, isn't quite fully versed on the full gospel, but he's, he's defending, um, defending it somewhat. He knows only the baptism of John, which was kind of like an Old Testament believer. And so, uh, and so they take him aside and they teach him the way of the Lord more accurately. It says at the end of Acts chapter 18. But no matter what happened, if the, if the ruler or the, the Caesar kicks him out, they're going to go preach the gospel. After he dies in about, I think it's AD 54, um, that's why they're probably back in Rome because he dies, the edict lifts, and they're able to go back to where they came from. And so they go back, and what did they do when they went back now? They planted another church. <laughs> they make disciples. Here's, in, in all this, um, here's the point. My dear friend, I don't care if you don't have a title or a position. You don't need one. You don't need one. Please understand that. The question is, are you willing to rearrange your life for Jesus Christ and for his mission? Doesn't mean you can't have a business. Doesn't mean you can't have a home. But does the mission of making disciples through preaching the gospel and planting churches, does that come first? Listen, I've got a wife. I've got kids. Like any dad, like any parent, I want, I just, you, we just do. We just want what's best for them. And a lot of times that means we want them to have nice stuff and we want them to be comfortable and we want them to be taken care of. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? But what's wrong is when that stuff gets elevated above the mission that Christ died to create for himself a people that live on this mission. Um, and so are you willing to rearrange your life? You know, you people, if I can press on this a little bit, uh, I'll begin to talk with this, about this with people sometimes and how we should be willing to leave all for the sake of the call. And this is what people will say. And I hear me, I've, I've probably said it. I really mean that. But they'll say something like this, well, I've got a job and a mortgage. And? Or I've, I've got kids, and they're in school, and they're in sports. And? Are, are you hearing me? Dear friend, th those things aren't obstacles to Jesus Christ. What's an obstacle in our lives of being used mightily by him is our lack of faith. Jesus Christ can take 
care of your mortgage one way or the other. He'll take care of your kids. He'll take care of your wife one way or the other. He'll take care of your job one way or the other. He'll provide for you. But to confess that Jesus is the Christ and that he's Lord means that his agenda comes first. Can I get an amen somewhere? And see, see dear friends, right, right here's the rub. Well, Eric, are you telling me that I need to sell all I have and, and, and go to the mission field? If Jesus tells you to. Yes. If Jesus tells you to, not me, but if Jesus tells you to, 100%. You better go. Um, and that's the attitude that, he, that each and every one of us need to have. Um, we, we're, and again, when I talk, going back to the idea here that we're united together in this mission. The, the deepest friendships that you will ever have will be forged in the midst of a spiritual fight and in the midst of battle. If you get a bunch of soldiers together who are never sent out to battle, they almost inevitably end up fighting each other because they were made to war. They were made to fight. Darkness, again, spiritually speaking, we're made to fight darkness See, I think one of the biggest pitfalls to unity in the, in the American church is that we've sought to build unity only around theological accuracy. Now, you understand that I, I believe fully that, yeah, like we, like we have all the Bible because we need all the Bible. Doctrine is important. Theology matters. We say that all the time. And so we want to get it right. We want to get it right. But our unity the deepest type of unity will not just be built around correct theology, but it needs to be centered also around mission. It's not one or the other. And when churches forget why they exist, which is for the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world, again, a, a few weeks ago, we, uh, back in, in, in chapter 15, Paul says that he no longer has room for any work in these regions, and so he's wanting to get to Rome to get to Spain. And again, I, I brought it up, and I was like, well, how, how could he possibly say that? Because he planted churches there. Because the church is the light, is the city on the hill for which the gospel is to go forward. And Jesus Christ, for 2,000 years, has been building his church. Let me, let me press it even more specifically. I don't have my bulletin with me. I believe on the front of the bulletin, almost every day since day one, our mission and vision statement have been on there. If you have a bulletin, pick it up and wave it at me so I know you got one. Okay, oh, many of you, yeah, read your bulletins. Sign up for e-news and read your bulletins, all right? Um, but on the front of that, the vision statement, the vision, just what do we want to see? Disciples made and churches planted throughout the earth to the glory of God. We have not lost sight of planting churches, but I want to shoot as straight as I possibly can, is we will never plant a church if you are not willing to rearrange your life. We will never plant a church if I'm not willing to rearrange my life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay? Because he has undoubtedly called us to this. It's what he is building. And if I can just, let me, let me quote J.C. Ryle here, um, just about the church. He says, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain 
to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away to go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. It is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It is a bush which is often burning and yet it is never consumed. How many of you want to go on a mission that cannot be stopped because Jesus Christ is in charge and is building it. It's the mission of establishing and planting the local church and of making disciples. Lastly, and right along with this, not only were they united in Christ, obviously, but united in the mission, but also united to each other. Here's the one thing that I'll just kind of press out of this, although there's a lot that could be said with all these names, is that they knew each other's stories. They knew each other's stories. I've already mentioned how he talks about Phoebe here and the help that she had given to many people who were coming and going for the sake of the mission. Um, He mentions Priscilla and Aquila and how they risked their necks, they risked their lives for Paul. Um, He talks about Mary uh, farther on down there. I forget which verse it is where he talks about how she had worked hard in the Lord. Um, He talks about Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Again, people knew this about him. They knew his story. Um, All these people have these stories. Paul knew some of them. Others of them he had heard about. If you look in verse 11, it says, Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Now, this is only speculation, but many of the historical commentaries point out that Narcissus was probably a very well-to-do guy that was actually um, somebody that got saved and was working in the Roman government. And he would have had a bunch of people, workers and such, as well as family members in his household. And Paul speaks to them, so this guy perhaps got saved. And so, again, all these people had a story, and Paul speaks to some of their story, he shares some of his story, other stories he's, he's heard about, but their stories were woven together, and they were woven together through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they're positionally united in him, but they were also woven together through the fact that they were all engaged in the same mission that Jesus Christ had given them. And there's one guy that I want to point out here, to begin to wrap up specifically, and I, I think a little bit of his story that I want to try to give some evidence for that might, might seem a little bit obscure on the surface um, that many people in the early church were familiar with, and that is Rufus. Everybody say Rufus. Great name. You know we got a lot of babies being born. I would like to propose Rufus, perhaps, <laughs> for a male name. Why not? It's a good guy. You don't want to name your kid Judas you don't want to name him Demas or, you know, one of the other shady characters in the Bible. But Rufus, good guy. Um, but look at verse 13. He says, greet Rufus. And then here's what he says. Chosen in the Lord, which is interesting. Because has Paul not hammered away at different places throughout this book that every Christian is chosen in the Lord? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Literally, against his chosen. If you've trusted in Christ, you are chosen in the Lord. You want to know if you're chosen? Believe in Jesus. That's it. But he says here, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, did you know, Bible trivia, there is, Rufus is mentioned one other time in the Bible. Anybody know where it's at? 
Mark chapter 15. And again, I think there's a point to this. Look at Mark chapter 15. Um, in verse 21, I'll read a little bit before that. But Mark chapter 15, I'll start in verse 16, it says, And the soldiers led him away, this is as Jesus is being crucified, they led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together a whole battalion, and they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him mockingly, Hail, King Jesus, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in paying homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes. And they led him out to crucify him. Then verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. To carry his cross. Rufus was one of the sons of Simon, who was a man who the soldiers just kind of randomly, from their perspective, chose to carry the cross. Now, let me explain why I think Mark mentions this, because again, the whole thing has a sense of randomness to it, and yet it's not random. It's part of God's inspired word. And I'm speculating a little bit here, but yet the point I'm going to make out of all of it remains the same no matter what, but let me try to piece together what I'm talking about here. In, in Mark's gospel, and, and the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke as well, compare, or, or, I'm sorry, um, tell this story of Simon being um, made to bury, or, or to carry the cross of Jesus for a time. But if you look here, the whole thing, it seems from the human perspective just to be this, this crazy act. So a few things we know about Simon, Rufus's dad, is he was compelled to carry it. And the idea here is like, in another one of the Gospels, it says they seized him. They made him do it. He didn't want to, but they just, they grabbed him. It says he was a passerby. It's very much like he wasn't planning on being there. He wasn't there, didn't know what was going on and wasn't watching the crucifixion. It says that he was coming in from the country, which means he hadn't been in the crowd that just a little bit earlier had been yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. He's not even from the area. He's from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya in northern Africa. And again, these are just some of the, some of the information that we know. And he's just passing by. The, the whole thing seems so unbelievably random. And then why does, why does Mark feel the need? Because Mark mentions him nowhere else in his gospel. Why does Mark say, oh, and by the way, this is the father of Alexander and Rufus? Here's what almost all scholars believe. Is the reason he just... He mentions Alexander and Rufus is because Alexander and Rufus were very well known to the early church. And so if you understand what Mark's doing in writing his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's just telling the story of the gospel of Christ and how he's, he's going to the cross. And he wrote this down to strengthen the early church and also to be a means of evangelism, to reach others. But in the midst of doing this, it's as if for just a second he pauses and, and he looks beyond just the initial story that he's telling about Christ going to the cross and he makes this comment about, and he's the dad of Rufus and Alexander. In other words, and, and again, his early listeners, the early readers, the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, they would have known them. And so it's like he gives this little aside from telling the story just to point out 
that this man's sons were going to be these leaders that everybody would have known in the early church. And I think this is why Paul here in verse 13 says, greet Rufus, the same Rufus, I think, chosen in the Lord. See, the whole reason why Rufus and his brother Alexander and his mom, who had ended up being a mother to Paul as well, the whole reason they'd got caught into this whole thing is because his dad was randomly, quote-unquote, randomly required to carry the cross. But I think what Paul was saying, no, no, no. Nothing's random. He was chosen in the Lord for this. And again, I think people knew his story. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that Paul brings this up here and mentions him as being chosen and that Rufus's mother, Alexander's mother, Simon's wife, ends up being a mother to him as well is that uh, this family was literally transformed, again, not just metaphorically, but literally transformed by the cross that their dad was forced to carry for a little bit. And I just want to try to land here this morning, again, in the list of all these people, and if you'll just stop and just look around for just a second, in the midst of all the people around you, I just want to say this, church, absolutely nothing is random. Nothing. In Christ Jesus, you're here this morning because he planned for you to be here. The person that's sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, in the balcony, wherever, they're your brother and sister in Christ. We've all been chosen in Christ through the message of the gospel. And he has put us together for a reason. He's put us together for a reason. And I, again, I I don't, I want it to be based on the scriptures. I don't want it just to be based on me seeming passionate or emotional. But I, I cannot tell you, like there is, I, I believe this in like the deepest part of who I am is that what we have in Christ Jesus through this gospel that we have been given, dear friends, I believe with all my heart it is enough to absolutely change the world. There is no secret sauce. There is no secret ingredient. It's just people like you and I who have been saved by grace but are willing to believe that we don't need to go look for a secret sauce. (laughs) We don't need to go find a secret ingredient. What makes a church healthy and thriving and alive is being united to Jesus Christ and telling others that they also can be united through faith in him. Worship team, you can come up and we're going to close. We're going to take communion this morning. If you would, just bow your heads for a second. Just close your eyes. The Bible talks about when we come to the Lord's table that it is good to examine our hearts. So it's good to be quiet before the Lord here for just a few minutes. Nothing is a dead religious ritual 
when it's done in simple, sincere faith to Christ. The simplest acts, giving a cup of cold water to somebody in Jesus' name, become extremely profound. Simple acts of serving each other, as many of the people in the passage that we looked at this morning served each other and had worked hard for each other. There's a way in which coming forward and partaking of the bread in the little cup that we'll give you, it can be a dead religious act if you just go through the routines or through the routine of it. But please don't let it be so today. For those of you that call Mercy Hill, Mercy Hill your home church, you are partners here with us. Again, we believe that every person when they put their faith and trust in Christ, they're instantaneously a member of his body. We call it partnership here for a reason. is because we're partners together in the mission that he's given us to preach the gospel and make disciples. As we come this morning and as we partake of the bread which represents Christ's broken body and the cup which represents his shed blood. My dear brother or sister, I'm just asking you, is anything in your life taking priority over the mission that he's given us? Now hear me, this has happened hundreds if not thousands of times throughout my walk with the Lord. I'm constantly having to die again to re-crucify myself by the Spirit and to surrender again to Jesus. So if you find yourself there, that's, it's okay, but don't stay there. Don't stay there. There is no one in this room that God does not want to use for his glory. I don't know what it is. Myself, none of the elders, no man is anyone's Lord and Savior. Again, there's only one. Jesus alone is the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one. He is preeminent and exclusive. But as we stand here in just a little bit and we sing and we come, that's really where I want to Again, both duly, not looking past what he's done. No, no, no. We, I, want, I want us to be so thankful for what he's done. But I just, brother and sister, there just can't be any other response. If we acknowledge what he's done in going to the cross, then we have to acknowledge what he calls us to do and how he calls us to live. And again, thinking about Rufus for just a second. He, he, in the moment that, I think Mark wants us to know that in the moment that Jesus was being mocked, Christ was building his church through saving this man's sons and their mother, who was a mother to the greatest missionary who'd ever lived as well. And so I just, I don't know, all that to say, I just want us to reorient, recalibrate our hearts to the cross and to the mission this morning. And if you're here this morning and you do not know where you would spend eternity, you truly, in your heart of hearts, you're just not sure. 
My dear friend, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the verses that saved my life were Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no man can boast about it. And if you will simply put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, that he died for your sin and was also raised for your salvation, you'll be born again by the Spirit of God. So just trust him. If you're helping serve communion this morning, please come.